0: Hello and welcome everybody wherever you are in the world. My name is Paul Ryan. I'm founder of PrescriptionRevision.com and I'm a GP and pharmacist based here in Ireland. I'm passionate about clinical pharmacology and therapeutics and really enjoy making the latest international guidance relevant to those of us at the cold face of primary care. So in this third podcast on the management of type 2 diabetes in primary care, I'm going to talk about six different areas. Number one is the use of oral hypoglycemics in renal impairment. The second part of this podcast is going to be the effect of oral hypoglycemics on patients' weight. The third part, I'm going to specifically talk about glyphosins or um Uh, SGLT2 inhibitors which they're also known as number four I'm going to talk about incretin based therapies so both GLP1 mimetics and DPP4 inhibitors number five I'm going to talk about cardiovascular outcomes and the final part I'm going to talk about um, is the current guidelines on cardiovascular outcomes namely the European Association for the study of diabetes the American Diabetes Association and the sign guidelines So hypoglycemics that are useful in renal impairment include linagliptin, the GLP-1 mimetics, so any of the glutides, pioglitazone, and insulin. So linagliptin is the one uh, dpp 4 inhibitor whose dose does not change as as the eGFR declines. So that's a useful useful thing to uh, to remember. So the next thing I'm going to talk about are the hypoglycemics um, effect on a patient's weight. So some hypoglycemics cause weight loss, namely metformin, glyphosins, and GLP-1 mimetics. The glyphosins cause about 3kg weight loss, and the GLP-1 mimetics uh, may cause about 5kg weight loss at 2 years. The next one is weight-neutral oral hypoglycemics, which are the gliptins, and the ones that can cause weight gain are glyclizide pyroglitazone, and insulin. So next, for the next part of the podcast, I'm going to talk about glyphosins, or sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors. So just to talk about the pharmacology of these agents first, 180 grams of glucose is usually filtered by the kidney every day. When plasma glucose levels exceed 11 millimoles per litre, This results in greater than 180 grams of glucose being filtered by the kidney per day, resulting in urinary glucose excretion. The sodium glucose co-transporter is responsible for most of the glucose reuptake within the kidney. SGLT2 reabsorbs 90% of this glucose, with 10% being reabsorbed by SGLT1. By inhibiting this transporter, glucose is excreted in the urine, result, resulting in plasma glucose being lowered. Due to their site of action, the efficacy of SGLT2 inhibitors uh, with regard to redu- blood, uh, glucose lowering effect depends on renal function, with an EGFR greater than 60 required to prior, prior to starting these agents. And this is advice as per November 2020. Because I und- I feel in the next few years this, this threshold will be lowered. So for now, if you're starting someone on a glyphosin, or otherwise known as an SGLT2 inhibitor, the EGFR has to be 60 or above. If the person is on an SGLT2 inhibitor or a glyphosin and their EGFR dips to below 60, so we say it's 50 or 55. This can be continued until the EGFR hits 45, and when it hits 45 or below, it should be discontinued. Now, these agents are not to be taken in combination with loop diuretics. They themselves cause uh, diuresis. As patients taking these medicines pass more urine, it is important to encourage them to drink more water, especially in nursing home residents. They are generally discontinued if a second UTI occurs in a patient, and if a, a patient experiences a, a fungal genital urinary infection as a result of these agents, they need to be. Prescri- they generally need to be prescribed an oral antifungal. If the fungal genital urinary infections are recurrent, the SGLT2 may need may need to be discontinued. So agents within this class include uh, canagliflozin dapaglyphalazin, mpaglyphalazin, and R2 I always just remember uh, my memory, it is C, D, and E, so canaglyphalazin, dapaglyphalazin, and mpaglyphalazin, and then the most recent one, r So I suppose just to remember, there's three things um, uh, when starting, just to be mindful of. Number one, do not start if the EGFR is 59 mL per minute uh, or below as the glycemic efficacy is dependent on renal function. And they're more predisposed to getting orthostatic hypotension and, you know, raised potassium levels in that if they are started. If the patient is on a glyphosin, to stop the glyphosin if the EGFR hits 44 mL per minute. Now, the interesting thing is that if you look over at the States and Canada, can is actually licensed um for diabetic kidney disease in patients who have an egfr of greater than 30. so i feel in the next year or two things are going to change here and we'll be able to start them at a lower uh egfr but for the moment the spc states that you 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 um you cannot start them if the egfr is greater than 60. The second thing to be mindful of first, so is uh, do not start at the eGFR fifty nine mL m/m per minute or below. But the second thing is do not start if the patient has peripheral arterial disease or diabetic foot disease. Um, and then the third thing is that um, to ensure that they are stopped during dehydrating illness. So we know that the other agents to stop during dehydrating illness: metforminase inhibitors, diuretics, um, and lithium. So glyphosins themselves have very few side effects, um, but uh, as already mentioned, they may cause um, UTIs because sugar in the urine increases bacterial growth. The other thing to be mindful of is that initial DAPA trials showed uh, an associated increase uh, in bladder cancers in men, uh, so that they should not be used with pioglitazone. Now, there are three more serious adverse effects with glyphosins. Now, I mentioned already that um, in, to not start in people who have, who have peripheral vascular disease. And why is that? The MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare and Products Regulatory Agency, in June 2016 stated that there was a risk of amputation with glyphosins and that canagliflozin should be stopped in those patients who develop ulcers, osteomyelitis or gangrene. Dehydration Itself may contribute to the increased risk of this, and we know the canaglifosin affects uh, it. It is uh, affects SGLT1 and two, so that's particularly probably because um, the re- uh, that's probably the reason why canaglifosin more so than the others are associated with it. Patients who are on glyphosin should check their feet regularly. So the, that was the first one. The risk of amputation with glifosins. The second point is diabetic ketoacidosis with glyphosate. And this is an, another MHRA warning to, in 2016. So the risk um and it's a not uh it's a euglycemic diabetic diabetic ketoacidosis, so it can occur at blood sugars less than 14. So for us not to be reassured by normal blood glucose if a person is into us with nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, excessive thirst, or rapid weight loss or pre, you know tachypneic. Um, The risk is between 1 in 1,000 and 1 in 10,000, especially in at-risk patients if intercurrent illness are dehydrated. SGLT2s are not recommended if if people are on loop diuretics or frail elderly uh, for this reason. Uh, And if the patient is in front of us, if we're we're working in an A&E department, we can do an ABG, but if not, um, we can test for blood ketones uh, using the strips. If suspected euglycemic DKA. The third most serious adverse effect is the possible increased risk of Fournier's gangrene with SGLT2s, and that's uh, as per the MHRA in February 2019. So now just to talk about the cardiovascular benefits of glyphosines. So three years ago, the drugs and therapeutics bulletin stated that glyphosines may offer cardiovascular benefits, but more data from properly controlled trials was needed. There was observational data showing encouraging results, but a prospective blinded RCT was needed. In November 2018, there was a declared TIMI trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, in which dapagliflozin showed uh, that there was, it caused a lower rate of cardiovascular death or hospitalisation for heart failure, there was an, and there was no difference in major adverse cardiac events in MACE versus placebo. Now, there was also a meta-analysis of cardiovascular and renal outcomes with SGLT2 inhibitors uh, in The Lancet, November 2018, and it showed that glyphosins have moderate benefits of MACE um, reduction in those with established cardiovascular disease, and that they reduce hospitalizations for heart failure and progression of renal disease, regardless of existing cardiovascular disease or a history of heart failure. So following on from that, Dapagliflozin is now licensed, as of uh, November 2020, in the treatment of HEFREF, so a heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, so where the ejection fraction is less than 40%, 40%, and it can be used on top of standard care. So with standard care, we know ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, spironolactone, and there is actually no there's no dose adjustment required based on renal function, although there's limited experience if the eGFR is less than 30. So just acknowledge the difference in, in, in indications for heart failure and as a hypoglycemic agent, if a person, uh, if we want to put a patient with type two diabetes on on dapagliflozin, that they should have an EGFR of greater than 60. But if a patient has heart failure currently, which is uh, a separate indication, it can be given to the patient at a 10 milligram dose in a patient with an EGFR of over 30. So it's just an interesting change, and that's a recent change in the last few weeks that I've seen. So the fourth part of this podcast, I'm going to talk about incretin-based therapies. So these are these are your GLP-1 mimetics and your DPP-4 inhibitors. So what are incretins? Incretins are gastrointestinal hormones that increase insulin secretion and promote satiety. They were initially seen because um, patients who take oral glucose the, it this causes a much greater insulin release versus people who are given IV glucose. So the two main types of incretin-based therapies: one of the GLP-1 memetics, your glutides, and separate one are uh, your T34 inhibitors, your gliptins. The main risk with these are your is your risk of pancreatitis, which ranges from one to hundred to one to thousand. Uh, and so if a patient presents with abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. That's just one of your differentials to have in mind if they're on a glutide or they're on a gliptin. So just to talk about glutides first, your GLP-1 mimetics. GLP-1 is lower in those with type 2 diabetes. So, um, And this is where it was seen that by giving people GLP-1, it actually gives better um, glucose control. They're actually useful if the person has low e- uh, EGFR because they, you can use them down to an EGFR of 15. So gliptin so, uh, should be the one thing uh, when you're starting a person a like glutide or GLP1 rheumatics is that you should stop the gpp 4 inhibitors, your glyptons before starting GLP-1 mimetic, because of this therapeutic duplication. So, so because the both from gpp 4 indirectly increases GLP-1, and um, so there's no point in putting leaving the monoglypton and then uh, and then start a glutide. So, semaglutide, which is Ozempic, and dulaglutide, which is Trulicity, can be given once weekly subcutaneously. Now in the last few weeks we've seen in the UK semaglutide can actually come, uh, comes now as a tablet so semaglutide 100 mg once daily it should be given with 120 ml of water 30 minutes before medic, other medications or food and that that's a that's a recent change I, as of today in Ireland we don't have semaglutide orally so liraglutide which is victoza is a once daily subcutaneous injection and young um uh, it can be given to young women of childbearing age or else if, if you're thinking of moving on to insulin exenitide which is twice daily is given as beta or as weekly as bidurian. Exenotide is a very interesting molecule in that it was initially taken from the saliva of a gila monster so it's a synthetic form of the component of saliva from the gila monster just to talk about the adverse effects uh, it mainly causes nausea and vomiting with the glp1 mimetics and the cynic in me uh can explain the reason why you have weight loss with glp1 mimetics one of the reasons is that you have nausea when you're nausea you're not going to be eating they are very expensive they're injectable apart from the recent launch of the semag- sem- semaglutide but um the rest of them are injectable and people don't like injections from what i see uh, a lot of our own patients aren't as keen on injections as they are tablets And obviously, like anything else, there are new molecules. There's limited long-term data compared to metformin, which is around since 1957. So just to talk about the cardiovascular outcomes with GLP-1 mimetics, um or glutides. So dualaglutide was shown to have a lower relative risk for non-fatal MI and stroke in patients over 50 with type two diabetes. And this is shown in the Rewind, Rewind, Rewind trial uh, published in the Lancet in June, 2019. But this only just reached statistical significance. Ozempic well, or semaglutide may be slightly better than placebo at preventing strokes. And that was a non-inferiority trial Uh, in established cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease published in New England four years ago at this stage, 2016. Liraglutide had more promising results, and this was the leader trial in 2016, and it showed that the person has a low risk of death um, with a number needed to treat of 98 over 3 years to prevent one death, and cardiovascular events with a number needed to treat of 68 over 3 years than placebo. Exenatide, or Blydurion, was actually cardio-neutral, so it was like your gliptins. So just to talk about gliptins, um, so you've got citagliptin, vildagliptin, saxagliptin and linagliptin. These were these are least effective in reducing HbA1c, reduced it by about 4 millimole per mole, uh, unlike your glyphosins or your sulfonylureas or your pioglitazone, reduced it by about 7, and, and then your glp one which reduced it by about 11. There's no They don't have a cardiovascular benefit and they're weight neutral. Now in saying all that, they are very well tolerated um and uh, especially in the elderly, they tolerate them very well, although they, one, it, it is noticed that they can increase the risk of upper respiratory tract infections. To be cautious that the dose of these will need to be reduced in renal failure except linagliptin. can go all the way down to the same dose, down to an EGFR of 15. And there are concerns about heart failure with saxagliptin. Now, the current uh, European Association for the Study of Diabetes The ADA and the SIGN guidelines, um, the ADA meaning the uh, the American Diabetes Association and SIGN guidelines, have have published guidelines regarding cardiovascular outcomes with regard to these GLP-1 memetics and uh, gliptins. So if the patient has pre-existing cardiovascular disease, there are three main agents, so canaglifazin, empaglifazin or liraglutide are the ones to be used. If the patient has known cardiovascular disease and heart failure or at risk of heart failure, dapagliflozin or the other uh, uh, SGLT2s, um, but dapagliflozin probably preferably, if the EGFR is greater than, I was saying, that if these guidance were, were saying that if the EGFR is greater than 60. Now we've seen with the medicines Satellite, they've changed that. And it's as long as EGFR is greater than 30. So the the guidelines will have to be updated Um Another agent that a person can use if they're not a target is the GLP-1, if they've known cardiovascular disease uh, or, and heart failure or at risk of heart failure. There's some evidence that GLP-1 mimetics are also useful. Now, if the patient has got chronic kidney disease, you can consider canagliflozin as there are renal benefits if the EGFR is less than 60. Now, if you go to the SPC, the Summary of Product Characteristics, currently today, these are it is not to be initiated if the ETFR is less than sixty. Um so, because of you know the risk of arterial hypertension, elevated potassium, and its decreased efficacy, um, so that is going to change, and I can see this SBC also changing. These are like one of these guidance the the ADA is the American Diabetes Association. We see the canaglifosin is used over there, um, at an eGFR of less than sixty. So we will see change in and decided upon. So if the patient is already on canoglyphicin, you can actually continue until EGFR is 44, uh, but just reduce the canoglyphicin from 300 milligram to 100 milligram. So that brings me to the end of today's podcast. I hope that you found it beneficial. I'm looking forward to delivering my next podcast. Thank you.